0: Hey, it's Brandon Laws. Welcome to Transform Your Workplace. This episode is brought to you by Zenium HR. Zenium is supporting small and medium sized organizations for their HR and payroll needs. Learn more about Zenium and the HR plus payroll model at zeniumhr.com. Given the pandemic, many organizations have shifted a lot of their internal and external meetings to being virtual. And many of us didn't have those skill sets before the pandemic started so i brought on lauren sergi she's the author of unmute how to master virtual meetings and reclaim your sanity i brought her on to give us some tips on how to facilitate meetings better what kind of technology setup we need to be clear in our communication and have a good video feed and audio feed and how to engage people and make sure they feel included and part of the meeting. Overall, we need to have better meetings, especially if we're going to stick to this virtual stuff. So enjoy the episode. Let me know what you think about this. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, any of those places. I would love to connect with you and even hear from you. Enjoy the episode. Talk to you next week. Lauren, it's a pleasure to have you on Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on. I'm excited to be here, Brandon. I'm excited to talk about your book, Unmute, How to Master Virtual Meetings and Reclaim Your Sanity. I mean, this is more relevant than ever, right? It really is. (laughs) For a lot of people, we're doing video calls all day, and for a lot of us, we weren't properly trained on how to do them appropriately. So I, we're going to dive into all that. And I'm really excited to talk to you.
1: It's just something, you know, we, we have to dive into it. We were, most people were forced to dive into yeah. it with absolutely no preparation. And, you know, as far as the, the notion of not having the training goes, it's over the past few months, Um, certainly more over the past five months than at any other point ever since everyone went to virtual, people have just been contacting me saying, Our meetings still suck. We're more stressed than ever. (laughs) Why isn't this getting better? And I'm like, because no one came out of the womb understanding how to deal with this medium. It's not intuitive.
0: I was talking to a colleague this morning on a, a one-on-one call, and I'd mentioned that I was interviewing you in, in the topic, and she's like, oh my gosh, this is so relevant. People need this. And, <laughs> and for for listeners out there right now, I mean, it doesn't matter what position you're in. If you're having video calls, this this conversation is going to be very relevant. So grab a notepad because there's going to be a lot of little technical things we'll talk about along the way. And it's funny. I read this book. It's it, You could read it in one sitting, by the way. I, I read it, I think, in a couple hours. last night, lay in bed, and I kept looking at my wife. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm doing so many things wrong. And I thought I was a pretty good expert when it comes to video conferencing. So I'm excited to just have a conversation with you about this.
1: Yeah, it's uh, never feel embarrassed if you ever, for anyone listening, don't feel embarrassed if all of a sudden you said, I've been doing that wrong the whole time. Again, this is dealing with different communication media, especially one that is relatively new, Involves a lot of thrashing for everyone, and it's rarely intuitive figuring all of this stuff out. You know, the last time we had a seismic communication change like this was with email, Mm -hmm. realistically. And how long ago was that?
0: Uh, Like 90s. I
1: vaguely remember it happening.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I was not. I was in maybe junior high or high school at the point, so. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, about the same same year. I never felt that transition.
1: (laughs) There was a ton of thrashing when email overtook everything else. I remember uh, I have very vivid memories of my dad complaining about email because, you know, why don't we just use the fax? And people still complain about email. So this is a very similar shift in communication technology and just expectations in terms of how we connect with one another. And the shift for some people, they've been using it for years. I've been virtual for a very long time. But for others, the shift was very sudden, very, very sudden. So we're still thrashing with it.
0: Yeah. Well, you think like video conferencing, because it's just you, the webcam, the other people on the, on the call, you think it'd be pretty straightforward and distraction free, but there's actually tons of distractions. What's going on with that?
1: There is so much going on. Uh, You know, many of us think that it should have been straightforward because really we can see the other people. They can see us. So what's the big issue as long as the tech is working? The issue is that that's not how our brains work in terms of communication. Communication is really contextual. So whenever we're speaking with someone, whenever we're interacting with someone, we're picking up environmental cues from all around us. And all of that floods into our brains and affects how we hear them, how we interpret what they're saying. So if you look at in person... It's pretty straightforward. You're sitting across from the person. You can make eye contact. You can read their body language. The room that you're sitting in provides some of the context and that information in terms of what to expect from the conversation, what the tone is going to be, what they're wearing, provides some of that context in terms of how you're supposed to relate to one of them. As soon as you stick yourself in front of a camera, all of that goes out the window. Now we're looking at people's environments, which are different from ours. We're looking into different rooms which throws our brains off a little. The eye contact doesn't work in quite the same way. And we know that we're supposed to look at the camera, but our, our minds want to look at the faces. So we have to make the decision to look away from our screen and up at the camera. We have to consciously bring our gestures up into where the camera can see it. Little micro pauses between the between whoever it is who's speaking because of technology likes all of this stuff plucks and pulls at our attention and really throws it off so you you often hear people saying like when they're on camera when they're on a web conference they feel like they're quote unquote on mm-hmm. and on all the time like they have to perform well yeah cuz you kind of do have to perform totally it's a different communication environment
0: Yeah, well, given that video conferencing is is visual versus just a regular phone call being audio only, you think that we would pick up on like nonverbal cues. Is this the case, or is there something else bigger at play here?
1: There's there's something a little bit bigger. It is more difficult for us to see those nonverbal cues when we're on camera. Uh, That comes from things like the framing of the picture, the angle at which your camera is at. Yes, camera angles are a big deal. Um, But it also comes down to video quality as well. We can't see nearly as much nuance as we could if we were sitting in a room with them. So that can make a really big difference. What I've found people need to do when they're on camera is very slightly amplify what their expressions are, what their tone of voice is doing so that it's just that much easier for the people on the other side of the screen to pick up on what they're saying. The great thing, the the great thing, the bad thing, I don't know, it's good and bad all lumped together. The difference with video and with audio only, like on a phone call, is that when it's audio only, you can focus completely on the person's voice. When it's video layered on top of that, now you're layering in additional input, additional meaning. So that needs to become really, really clear. And that can affect our ability to focus
0: a little bit. Are video conferencing skills, except they are skills, I think, are they a nice to have skill? I mean, we're not going to be doing this forever, Right. Yes. <laughs> yes, we Brandon. are. Yes, we are. <laughs> for
1: anyone who's listening being like, I just have to get through to the end of the pandemic whenever that might right. be. I think I'm that's so how a lot sorry. of people are
0: thinking though, but I, 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 I'm I, with you. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think we're going to be using this skill for a long time, for forever, really.
1: For a long time. Uh, this is permanent. We might not be connecting as frequently via video conferencing once we're able to do in person more often. But the benefits of having this as part of our communication toolkit far outweigh the disadvantages. It's, you know, you hear so many people, I'm glad that I don't have to commute anymore. It's so nice to not have to drive from meeting to meeting to meeting, you're saving an enormous amount of time. Um, There is the reduction in long haul travel for many people. So there is significant environmental effects of this when you don't need to be flying across the country for a one hour meeting. All of that is really good stuff. And being able to lay eyeballs, yes, in a a somewhat strained and and cognitively heavy environment, as I like to say that video conferences are, being able to lay eyeballs on someone and have that face-to-face interaction at a distance really does improve your reach in terms of your business. You now have a global reach and your ability to build relationships with clients or with remote team members. So there's enormous advantages to it. Again, not that we're going to be 100% relying on on it in the future, but you don't want it to go away. And even if you don't like it at all yourself, it's mainstream now. That's a big thing to remember. It is part of people's expectations that this is a communication option for them to use. So you want to keep up on these skills.
0: Yeah, I agree. Well, in, in your book, you wrote that when someone handles a virtual meeting really well, people take notice. So what do those meeting facilitators do that others who don't have the skills really don't do well?
1: They are very good at keeping control of the conversation, keeping people focused and on track and making everyone feel like they're part of it. And part of that is the performance skills. So very good online facilitators will do things like make quote unquote, uh, you can't see my air quotes, so I have to keep saying that, (laughs) direct eye contact. They're very, very good at that, in which their eyeballs are locked onto their camera aperture. That has a very real effect in terms of how the people who are participating respond to you, because they'll say, Brandon's looking right at me. Even though, even though in their smart in the smart part of their brain, they know they know that that's not the case. You're looking at a camera, or you're looking at everyone. The more reactive, the more instinctive part of our brain says they're looking at me. So that creates a much more intimate connection and can actually help people keep attention, keep their attention on the screen instead of, oh, wandering off to their yep. email. Let's say, yeah. it really does help that. They're also very good at cueing people as to when they should speak. So they don't leave it up to everyone on the call to guess as to when you want someone else to fill in the blank. They'll move the conversation along uh, by saying, okay, well, you know, we recently had a really good meeting with the client about about the sale that we're putting through, but I know that there has been some issues with procurement. Natalie, you were working on procurement the other day. Do you have anything to say about that? Has Any information changed. So they speak directly to the person that they want to talk. Now, if Natalie is also really good at this, she might do something like respond to them, say, Yes, this is what I've learned, or say, I don't have anything new, but I know that Adam was on a call with their lead the other day. Adam, did anyone else come from that call? So she will then cue someone else on the meeting to speak. So you have this more deliberate passing of the baton. Yeah. From person to person. And that relieves a lot of those long, awkward pauses, which will happen. Sometimes you need to open up the floor to everyone. And then we all blink at each other like a bunch of fish until someone finally speaks up. (laughs) But good facilitators are really good at, at, at kind of managing the conversation that way.
0: Yeah. With good facilitation are are they using some of these really fancy tools that some of these apps have you know microsoft teams or zoom or whatever like polls breakout rooms whiteboards i mean are you for one are you a fan of those and the second part of that with facilitation are they using these tools if they're really good
1: i prefer very simple tools if any I'm kind of a minimalist when it comes to using the, the, the bells and the whistles with the interactions, just as I'm a bit of a minimalist with in-person. I don't like things like those little clicker polling apps and and No, they're
0: distractions.
1: They're distractions and cahoot and whatnot. And what's happening then is that you are hoping that yet one more piece of tech that has to integrate with everything else works the way it's supposed to. That being said, they can be used extremely well. And the ones that I find most useful are depending on what the engagement is like. Breakout rooms can be great, Mm -hmm. but you better Mm -hmm. give people at a minimum five to 10 minutes to be in that breakout room for them to do anything functional. And polling. Simple polls, you can throw a question out to the audience, they fill something in, and then that gives you something to actively respond to. Whiteboards are okay, but my skills in them are so limited <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I like the sketch in in your book. There was this little sketch of the drawing and I'm like, yeah, that's that's better than what I would do. That's for sure.
1: That took me like 10 minutes to do. It's sad. <laughs> it's just sad. I know some people who are brilliant with the whiteboard, but unless you're very, well, they
0: probably have like the stylus or like the, uh, what's the app or the little device called that you know, it's spendy. It's, oh
1: yeah. Yeah. We're,
0: but it's like a little tablet that sits on your desk and you can draw on it and,
1: and you can draw straight on it. That sort of stuff. If you are, tricked out that way, power to you. That's awesome. I'm actually a little bit jealous. I'm looking into getting one of those myself. Um, But for the most part, I don't care for them. I just find them too cumbersome to use. And when a tool is tricky to use, you throw yourself and everyone else off by having to fiddle with it. 100%.
0: Hundred percent. I I had this example uh, two weeks ago. I was uh, we have these big all team meetings once a month with our team. We have about ninety employees, and I think about sixty five seventy people jump on usually. And I'm facilitating this meeting, and I'm trying to launch a breakout room at the beginning of the meeting to do like a little exercise. And as people are coming in, they're like silent because they're muted. And they can see me like wasting several minutes trying to (laughs) manually develop the breakout rooms. And I'm like, why am I even doing this? What like what a waste of time. And it's awkward. And people probably think I'm an idiot. So I'm with you. Some of these tools are just they're too cumbersome and sometimes don't make sense.
1: Yeah. And I think the trap that we've fallen into in terms of the tools is, you'll see this in in in-person speaking as well, is that organizers will say, um, how are you planning on engaging people? What tools of engagement are you going to use? And then, of course, we automatically think, oh, tools, yes, gizmos, gadgets, apps. (laughs) You create engagement by creating something that is engaging. And by learning how to be on camera in a manner that makes people want to watch you. So it's much more about how you signal your interest to the audience than what tools you're going to use. Because a boring poll or a poll that has nothing to do with your content which I see a lot of, incidentally, let's find out where everyone's from. Oh, I don't care where everyone is right now. Just get to the stuff. Um, You know, a poll like that that doesn't have any reasonable place in your content is pointless and it turns people off. But if the poll is relevant and it gives you something really good to respond to, then use it. One of my favorite polls is in my presentations about virtual meetings, I will ask audience members to estimate how many hours a week they spend in virtual, and I've got a range from zero to five, six to 15, and so on. That is a fantastic poll because invariably, it's way too much. And when people see that number pop on the screen after I close the poll, you can almost hear them go, (gasps) at the end, and I have something really good to respond to. So that is a very engaging poll. But what's your favorite pet is not. So if the tool makes sense for your content, use it. Otherwise, don't.
0: You said earlier that a good meeting facilitator, they'll they'll engage people and they'll make them part of the conversation. But I, I've been in meetings where, you know, people are talking over each other. They're just there's no dead air where you could jump in. So if somebody wants to jump into the conversation and they're really finding it hard to do so, what's the best way to indicate that they want to talk? Is it using some of these little, um, hand raise emoji things? Is it typing in the chat that, Hey, I want to speak or do you dive in? Like what's the best way to do this? And it probably depends on the size of the meeting too.
1: Yeah, it definitely depends on the size of the meeting if it is a smaller meeting. So basically if you can see all of the different people on the screen, yeah, then I find that physically raising your hand works best. Because that's the easiest thing to see. Now, of course, that necessitates everyone having their cameras on. So this Mm. is where we actually need to get a little bit into virtual meeting etiquette. So one of the first things to establish is, does everyone have their cameras on or is it only the active speaker who has their cameras on or is everyone's cameras off? if everyone's cameras are off because it's a big group and you need to preserve bandwidth, then you need to indicate how you want them to ask questions. Maybe it's the hand emoji. That's not my favorite because frankly, I never see it.
0: Um, (laughs) I can just never, I
1: never, my eyeballs don't find it on screen.
0: And sometimes I think I'm like, has that always been up or like, cause you, you didn't catch it when it first came up. So you're, you see the hand raise emoji and you're sort of like, was that for something else earlier or at least that's what goes through my head. So sometimes oh, totally. I just ignore it.
1: <laughs> totally. Um, getting them to type into chat, I find works quite well because it pops up and things move on the screen, which is going to catch your eye. Our eyes are attracted to movement.
0: So there's a timestamp too. So that helps.
1: Yeah. And there's the timestamps that is very, very helpful. Another way to deal with this, and again, this comes down to the amount of control that the facilitator has over the meeting, is to, if you've got a really chatty group, etiquette is that everyone is to set is set to mute. And again, this is for the group with people who won't shut up. The etiquette is that everyone is set to mute unless they have something specific to say. They can unmute themselves unless they are known to be particularly unruly And if you know that you've got a problem group, then you make time, you make deliberate plans in your meeting as to when you're going to open the mics up, when you're going to allow people to speak, and you have to be ready to moderate that conversation. So if John won't shut his trap, at some point, you're going to have to cut in and say, John, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to put you on mute for a minute so we can allow other people to respond. And you tell them, this is uncomfortable to do if you're not used to doing it. So if you're in the <laughs> position where you have to wrangle a pretty unruly group, to a degree you have to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to be putting on the shushing librarian hat. And that's just my role. That's my role right now. It really helps, again, if you have a dedicated facilitator that everyone knows that that's their role. It makes it a lot easier. Now they have permission to mute and unmute people and cut in and say, okay, Nancy, you go first. All right, thank you, John, you're next. All right, thank you. And really come in with a with a strong sense of control. Part of this, again, is the environment in which we're communicating. Usually during a meeting, people talk over one another in in in-person meetings as well. But what we can see in in in-person meetings are body cues like people shifting around in their seat, kind of shuffling up and down, opening their mouths, taking a deep breath, and we can see everyone around the table doing that. That is usually how we would cue off of one another. But in the absence of that, the facilitator of the meeting, whoever's in charge, they need to pay attention and they need to open up the floor to people, to give them that opportunity to speak.
0: I'm glad you brought up the in-person aspect of it. This is not in your book and that you probably could do an update to your book at some point because a lot of people are making plans for hybrid. And what that means is you might have some people left behind. So you have a, let's say... Partially people are in an office meeting, but then there's like two, three, four people logging in virtually. And I just don't know how you facilitate a meeting when you probably have a bunch of people in person talking over each other and obviously seeing each other, seeing the body language, and then the people virtually might be left behind. I don't know if you have a comment on that. It's not in your book. And I don't know if you put a lot of thought into that aspect, but I'm curious what you think.
1: Yeah, that's such a good question to ask because it is tricky. Now, I've worked with this with my own clients separately who do have hybrid situations going on. And when I, when I was still back in my, uh, in my library days, actually, um, I often worked with remote teams and this was something that we regularly dealt with. Whenever you're dealing with a hybrid situation, there is going to be that element of the people who are in the other room or by themselves. That element of separation really can't be ignored. And what I find very useful again is to plan out the interactions so that you specifically invite the people who aren't in that room to speak up when they need to. You have to invite them to speak. Otherwise, people who are in the room will take over and Often the ones who are in the room together aren't doing it deliberately. It's just that their brain is in in in-person mode. Um, What really helps here, though, is if you have the in-person facilitator being assisted by a moderator, and this is also helpful for big online-only meetings. So you have the person who's driving the meeting, running the agenda, queuing the conversation, but then you have their helper whose entire job it is, is to watch that chat box, to look for the hands being raised, to pay attention to the people on screen, and then to flag the person driving the meeting whenever someone on screen needs some time, someone who's remote. Okay, we've got a question coming from Montana. Okay, we've got a question coming from Quebec, whatever it is. But they have permission to interrupt the meeting leader to say, okay, this person has a question. We're going to the online people now. It's a huge juggling act.
0: Let's put this conversation into context because we're saying like we need to develop video conferencing skills. It's important. I was shocked by, I don't know if it was research or just a general uh, amount of time that people are spending on video calls, but give us that data point. How much time in general are people spending throughout their day on video calls? It's disgusting.
1: It's, it's horrible. <laughs> um, it really does depend on the industry, I've found. And it definitely depends on the level of responsibility. So people who are in high external client contact industries, sales, anything that's client facing right now, they're on video calls, usually 15 hours plus a week because so many of their client calls are on video. Now, in the past, most of that would have been on phone. So them being remote, that's not terribly unusual. But we have to remember, video calls are cognitively heavier than phone calls. So it's tiring. As we go up the ladder, it is not uncommon for senior leaders and executives that I work with reporting that they are spending 25 to 30 plus hours a week in virtual meetings. That's
0: insane. Yeah, that's disgusting. It's
1: horrible. It is absolutely horrible. And that often means that they're then running out of time to do their actual work. It's the, It's the classic too many meetings situation. So they're working later, they're working longer to try to catch up on the thinking work that they need to do as
0: well. Do you have any tips on like how to reduce meetings or even uh, cadence or scheduling? I know you have some thoughts on all this because that stuff is in in your book.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of strategies you can use. and I'm going to preface this by saying that you do always need a modicum of flexibility because stuff is going to come up. But what you want are basically rules of thumbs or norms of behavior that you always use except in exceptional circumstances and define exceptional circumstances closely. So as far as reining that sort of stuff in, my main mantra is that not everything has to be a meeting and not every meeting has to be virtual. So as much as possible, ask yourself, is this a meeting item? Why are we meeting in the first place? Why am I calling this meeting? Why am I being invited to this meeting? Is this something that could be a phone call or an email? And that's going to take some judgment on your part. If the answer is simply yes, then cool, make it a phone call or an email and save yourself some brain space. If the answer is no, this is a meeting, then start asking yourself, do I need to be involved? Who actually needs to be in on this? A trap that we've fallen into is calling meetings for the purpose of checking in on one another. I was like, do people know I'm working? Do I know they're working? I know. We're going to create a virtual meeting so we can all lock eyeballs on one another and see each other working. You know, that's not always a good thing. So people who should be in a meeting are those who can take action or make decisions on the stuff that is being discussed. Occasionally, there will be someone who is there to, say, record the meeting proceedings. That's just fine. Or you might have someone that genuinely needs to be there as an observer, but that's pretty rare. So if you are not in a position where you can take actions or make decisions, turn the meeting down. Or if you know that no action or decision is going to be made, don't call the meeting. That's probably a report that you have to write and send to people that way. So that's one way that you can start winnowing back those meetings. I really like to put firm boundaries on how many meetings a week I accept and when I accept them. So some people are good with spending hours on virtual meetings a day for one or two days a week. They're the sprinters. And then they want a couple of days where they are off camera. That's when they recuperate. That's when they do some deeper work, voice only. That is great. I myself am a sprinter because frankly, it reduces the amount of time that I spend getting ready for the video calls. I don't have to put on makeup as often. Um, so if that's what works for you, then great. Designate a couple of days during the week where that is when you accept all of your calls. If, however, you find that exhausting, start paying attention to what you can tolerate during the day. And it could be that you like to put all of your calls in the morning and not in the afternoon or vice versa, but you'll do that five days a week. Great. Then that becomes your default mode of when you are willing to accept those kinds of meetings. So whatever your rhythm might be, you're going to need to pay attention to your energy levels over a couple of weeks to really figure this out. But whatever your rhythm for that might be, put that into your calendar and then start ruthlessly blocking off all of the other time. I call those blackout periods. Those are periods when you do not accept meetings or at least don't accept virtual meetings. And you really have to defend that space. Now, again, it's not always going to be possible But when you do schedule something in a blackout period, that should be the exception, not the rule. It takes discipline to do this. Um, Tools that can work against you in terms of blackout sessions, and this is very much for the people who do most of their own scheduling, are apps like Calendly. I
0: was just about to say that. They
1: look great on the surface, but they open you up to too many meeting opportunities. So unless you upgrade your Calendly to one of the fancy paid versions where you can say, I only do these times, then I would avoid using it. I would actually create meetings through email instead of through an automatic app. If you have someone else who is scheduling your stuff, let them know what your schedule is. Make sure that it's visible in your shared calendar so that other people can abide to that. Now, if you're in an organization, I strongly encourage organizations to have company-wide or at least team-wide blackout periods. So these are the days when we do video calls internally, usually. These are the days that we don't. So everyone is working off the same page. And some organizations that I've worked with, they will create one day a week where there are no video calls. And it's basically the new casual Friday. Stay in your jammies. No one will see you. It's fine. But everyone behaves that way. And when you have that kind of consistency, it becomes much easier to protect those off-camera times.
0: I use uh, our organization uses office 365 and there's a nice feature in there that I turned on and it's called focus times and it'll like analyze my calendar and it'll actually place. I don't know. I think there's like four to five. I think it's like every day, every weekday, it'll throw a focus time on my calendar based on just my, existing calendar. And it'll do it weeks in advance. So that way, if, if I'm good about it, I'll honor that time. And also it's blocked off from my calendar. So people can't even schedule anything. I do have a Calendly account and it's backfired on me in the past where somebody schedules something and I'm like, I really didn't want to use that time. But now that the focus time is already thrown on there, it syncs with my Calendly and then people can't abuse me. It's great.
1: Yeah. If you can get the apps syncing together that way, That is fantastic. As long as you can make the tool work for you. The fact that 365 will create that focus time is a really beautiful thing. Um, Another great tool, one that I've actually found extremely useful, um, not a tool, it's more of a discipline of a habit, is to set up transition times between your meetings. Because we tend to run our meetings back to back, one into another, and you don't even have time to like get up and pee, quite frankly. It's habit because it's so easy to bounce from meeting to meeting that way. So if you look back to in-person, we used to have more time in between because we needed to move rooms, we needed to go get more supplies, drive to another location, and those little breaks helped us mentally close down the books on one meeting and open up the mental books on the other. Even if it was a 90-second sprint down the hall, that still helped. We don't have those boundaries when we're relying too heavily on virtual meetings. So transition times are 30-minute blocks of time in between your virtual meetings where you can create that space. You will often hear people say, oh, we only schedule meetings for 45 or 50 minutes. Um, And Brendan, do you want to take a stab at what they almost invariably tell me in the next breath?
0: (laughs) I couldn't even guess. What do they say?
1: But the meetings tend to run a little over that, though. Like, of course they do we think of our time, not in 50 minute chunks or in 45 minute chunks, but usually in hour and half hour chunks. That's how they appear default in our calendar. That's true. Yeah, that's where our brains are at. So if you give yourself a 15 minute meeting, you're gonna fill it up to that hour, almost guaranteed, very unusual that it doesn't happen. But half an hour appears as a really nice little chunk in your calendar, which makes it easier to protect. And then After the one meeting closes down, you can send your follow-up emails, you can make your notes, you can send out your invitations to the next meeting, whatever it is you have to do. Then you still have time to go take care of yourself, stretch your legs, grab a fresh coffee, whatever, and sit down at your computer and open up all the documents you need, get your brain going for the next meeting. So each meeting becomes more productive with this half hour space of time in between them. It also creates a natural limit on how many meetings you can stick in a single day. Because now, if even if you're working a typical eight-hour day, if you have back-to-back-to-back meetings, a good three hours is going to be taken up with transition times. So you've now built in more breathing room.
0: Let's spend the last few minutes that we have together talking about the tech setup. So for listeners, grab a notepad. We'll We'll talk about some of the technical aspects to making a really good video call. So... Equipment wise, what are the must haves, like non negotiables, that you really need to have in terms of a good video call?
1: First, non negotiable is that you need enough light. And everyone listening, you thought I was going to say camera,
0: didn't you? I knew that you were going to say lighting <laughs> because I read your book and mm-hmm. I also I also know that good lighting is really important. So,
1: Good lighting increases any camera's ability to perform for you. So if your camera image is super, super grainy, if you can't get a decent image going, which is distracting for you and the other people on the call, you probably need either more light or better directed light. If you look like a ghost, which is what I tend to do, I'm very pale, then you need the light to be kind of less direct, less in your face. So find some blinds, find some shades, throw those over your lamps. But what I find most people benefit from are two additional table lamps. Simple table lamps will do it. Placed on either side of your monitor, 30 degree angles to your face. And that's going to give you really nice, even lighting that will help your camera work better. So the lighting is in place. The next thing I recommend if you're looking at spending a little bit of money, and it really is just a little bit, is to upgrade your camera. My favorite, which I tout in the book and in my resources section, is the Logitech C920.
0: That's what I have.
1: That's what you have. I've upgraded very slightly to the C922. Oh, which apparently has faster frames per second. But honestly, for the most part, you're not going <laughs> to notice a difference. Logitech C920, it has, there's a few reasons. It has really good quality picture, it is very easy to use, and it actually has a really good external microphone on it too. So even if you don't want to upgrade your mic, it's pretty decent. It'll do a good job. Those are the two must-haves. The next become your audio which is either investing in a decent external USB microphone, I use an ATR 2100. Again, it's simple, it's easy, you plug it in, and it's good to go. But realistically, for most people in a business context, the headphones that came with your cell, with your mobile phone, the headset that came with that is what's going to work beautifully for you. They have good microphones that are calibrated to pick up your voice from one direction. So they help to cut back on background noise. Uh, It will prevent any kind of echo because the sound is being piped directly into your ears. So your microphone won't pick it up. And the other reason why I always recommend these earbud headsets is because even though those giant noise canceling headphones with the mic that swivels out in front of your face are super comfy and very effective, they make you look like an airline pilot. And it just looks weird
0: i love the picture that you have in your book and i'm like damn i actually i have one of those i don't use it very often i actually i use my podcasting mic for most meetings now which yeah I mean, it looks it probably looks stupid in front of me but it's best quality and then i use earbuds uh for yeah. headphones but yep but yeah the, the airline plan that is a real thing it does look silly it
1: It looks really silly, and the the reason why I mention the aesthetics of it is because it becomes, again, one of those distractions. What you want to do on camera is kind of look as normal as you possibly can, as if you were sitting across the table from someone. And you wouldn't be looking at them wearing those massive headphones. You wouldn't be looking at them wearing little cell phone earbuds either, but it's a little less distracting. So it helps to keep the interaction feeling more natural.
0: Let's talk about attire. You wrote that everything people see on camera carries a message. So does this mean I shouldn't be wearing a hat and a hoodie to video calls?
1: Ugh. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so attire, the rules of attire depend entirely on who you're meeting with and the context of the meeting. So if you are with a close knit team who has seen you at your absolute worst at two o'clock in the morning during crunch time, they've got your back, they've proofread or or backed you up on some terrible emails that you sent out, you know, these are your, your workmates, then you know what, show up in the hoodie, show up in the t-shirt. That's fine. They're used to seeing you. But if you are speaking to a client, if you're speaking to people that you need to send a very specific professional message to, then you want to dress accordingly definitely up your game if you are speaking up the ladder in your organization. I don't like ball caps because they block your face and they encourage hunching over. So it kind of messes up your body language and your facial visibility. That's why I say those are pretty much always a no go. But aside from that, think of how you would dress if you were usually seeing these people and then dress like that it's not complicated.
0: Well, since the camera is really picking up the, the top part of us, we, we don't have to wear nice pants, right? Wear pants. <laughs> wear pants. Yeah. Wear
1: pants. Put the
0: pants on. <laughs> the, the example you use, I think it was a, like a CNBC interview or something where a guy wasn't wearing pants and his frame actually captured like part of his leg and, and you're like, oh, okay, I'm never going to make that off well, For one, I always wear pants. But for people who maybe or considering, yeah, it's not going to be shown. Just wear pants.
1: Just wear pants. I completely hear you. Almost every day before, if I've got a day full of meetings, almost every time part of my voice says, Lauren, they won't see your legs. Just stay in your buffalo check jammies. Those are your favorites. They're comfortable. But What? here's why I say not to do it. There is a chance that you're going to need to stand up. Yep. Maybe a child, as in my case, has intruded in your room because the little rotters are home from school and don't understand the idea of mommy can't be interrupted right now. Maybe your dog is barking. Maybe an appliance is beeping or you need to grab something from the printer. You are going to think to yourself when you're making your sartorial decisions, that's okay, I'll remember. But you won't. Nope. Nope. In that moment, you're going to stand up and then everyone will see your flannel jammy backside. And it's just, it's a humanizing moment, but it's probably not the moment that you want when you're on a very respectable call with your senior leaders or that important external client. So as long as the pants look good on camera, which Often means most yoga pants, actually, for men and women. As long as the pants look okay on camera, you can wear them. But please wear something that looks okay on camera, because you never know.
0: Virtual backgrounds, use them or scrap them? Scrap. Why?
1: I have feelings about virtual backgrounds. Um, tell me. Oh, I, I will tell you. I will tell the world. The reason why virtual backgrounds are no good is twofold. First up, they are a brutal distraction. Very few platforms are able to keep up the necessary not to chop off parts of your body whenever you move. It's true. So you get all of this clipping and all of this blurring around your outline, which looks really strange. The other technical issue with that is that even if you've got something, you know, nice and professional, like a really swanky office building behind you, the lighting is usually different. So you have one kind of lighting in your virtual background and another kind of lighting on your face, which will immediately to everyone on call make them think, huh, that looks weird. And now they're paying attention to it, which you don't want. You want to make it easy for them to pay attention to. The other non-technical reason for this is that usually we can tell when it's not your actual background and the question pops up, where are you and why won't you show us? It's like there's this fantastic moment years ago in The Simpsons where Mayor Quimby is trying to hide the fact that he is on vacation in Barbados and it's all well and good until a guy with a kettle drum comes walking across his fake office screen (laughs) and the ruse is broken. That's actually a thing. There was a big scandal over Christmas up here in Canada where several of our elected officials were trying to hide the fact that they were on illicit tropical vacations during lockdown and no travel times. I heard about that. Using virtual (laughs) backgrounds. And what it does is it erodes trust. There's an enormous aspect of authenticity Are you where you say you are? Are you representing what you say you represent when it comes to being on camera? So, whatever's behind you, make it real. And going with virtual backgrounds actually means you miss an opportunity to brand yourself. So, you can make your background, even if it's just a couple of square feet against a wall behind your head, you could. Put up a picture that kind of reflects your personality. Are you a very serious minimalist type person and you want to reflect that? Okay, put up that kind of artwork. Are you a more huggy type and you want clients to feel very comfortable around you? Stick a plant or a textile behind you. That will actually give a little bit of a sense of who you are right behind your face. If you want to just put forward this straightforward corporate image, depending on your resources, uh, maybe you steal one of your office's trade show banners. <laughs> and have that behind you. Or you order one that you can hang behind you. I've got several clients that have those, and it looks so good. But you really don't want to create that unnecessary distraction of the virtual background. It's not worth it.
0: I can't help but laugh at all this because what I've done... So I I recently moved into a new home, and I'm kind of in a temporary office setup. That's kind of a disaster and building a new uh, home office in my, in my basement. But what I did was last time I was in my actual work office uh, and I have a private office and I took my, really nice DSLR camera and I took a picture of the background which is what normally people would see in my private office and I use that as a background and I've actually fooled people with that.
1: Nice.
0: They think I'm actually in the office but now what you're saying is is disingenuous so I might rethink my strategy a little bit here. <laughs> again, like
1: Again, is it disingenuous? I would argue no, that is no more disingenuous than using a vinyl banner with your company's logo on it. It is Representing your actual space, your actual personality, and everything else. So that's okay. The problem there would be if you were able to fool them. So if you can sit still enough, basically, that you don't get the clipping. And if the camera quality is good enough, that it becomes almost imperceptible.
0: Yeah. Okay. It it does work pretty well because I use the Logitech C90 and (laughs) the lighting's pretty good in here. And I've got a couple of
1: good colleagues of mine who also do a ton of virtual work and they have finessed their virtual background game to the point where it's imperceptible, but they did things like invest in green screens. Like the big thing was that they got their lighting perfect. And then when they're on camera, they move around very, very little. So they've got some seriously good virtual background game and it works for them. What I find for your average person who just needs to look good on camera is it's actually more trouble than it's worth.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I got one more thing for you and then I'll let you go because I've kept you a long time. The eye contact is the hardest thing. And I, I'm i speaking for myself here, but I know other people struggle with it. So I have three monitors. And oftentimes if I'm, t- <laughs> if I'm I know you're laughing because you're like, oh, you're the guy that's like got his head turned half the time, which is true. Like if I have a document or I'm looking at a calendar, or I'm writing notes or something, I'm, I'm turning my head a lot. And sometimes I'm paying attention to the fact that I probably need to be staring at the camera. So that way there's like eye contact with people people that are looking directly at the screen. But what tips do you have for people who struggle like I do about making eye contact with people? Mm -hmm.
1: You know, it's okay to have multiple screens in front of you. It really is. I almost always have two in front of me at any point in time because on one screen, there's going to be the meeting where everybody is. And on the other screen, there's the documents that you need to refer to. Very, very normal. With the eye contact, you want to think about... This is kind of next level eye contact. We do it to signal that we're paying attention. So if you want people to feel like you are speaking to them, look at the camera while you're talking. If you want people to feel like you are really paying attention, like you are listening deeply, that's a time when you want to be also be making deliberate eye contact with the camera, which is weird. It's like, I'm listening to you so hard, but I'm not actually looking at you. But you think that I'm looking at you, and that's what counts. And again, it's this weird psychological game that we kind of have to play in this environment. Now, this isn't to say that you can't ever look away because you're going to want to check in on the screen and look at their faces every now and then. And that's normal. You're also going to need to look at your documents. And that is normal. We don't stare at each other relentlessly when we're in person either. Like you want to make someone feel super uncomfortable, never look away. Like never look away while you're talking. They'll get pretty pretty nervous there.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But with virtual, it's a matter of kind of balancing out how often you look at the camera and how often you allow yourself to deliberately look away. So if I was to put a really rough number I would say that when I'm speaking, 70% of the time I'm on camera, I'm, I'm looking directly at the camera lens. 30% of the time I'm looking elsewhere. But if I need to go off camera and really be paying attention to a document or looking something up, I'll tell people.
0: Well, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You just tell them. Um, yeah. You know, I have my document open right over here. Let me have a look at that. And now they know that whenever you're looking away, you're looking at their document because you told them. Even if you're checking your email surreptitiously, they'll still think you're looking at your document. Shh, you didn't hear that here. But you know, that's that's one of the ways that you can make people feel like you're still paying attention, even if you have to turn your face. Just tell them what you're doing. Then look at the thing, find the information that you need, and look back at the camera afterwards. So it's a balancing act.
0: Yeah, that section of the book, admittedly, I had uh, my heart skipped a few beats, I think, uh, because I was just like, Dang it. I do not do this well. Now I have awareness around us, so I will do better next time. So I appreciate you for that.
1: First, there's awareness. <laughs> it's, it's awareness first. Make it easy for your eyeballs to find the lens. One of the nice things about the C920 is that it has two blue lights around either side of the camera, which makes it easy to catch the eye. But if you have one of those little cameras that's embedded in a sea of black laptop frame, tape a bullseye over it I know it's silly, but it works. Make it easy for your eyes to find the camera. And this is the sort of awareness and then deliberate repetition. So before you get that, that's what turns it into a habit. Before you sit down in your meeting, let your eyes find the camera and then remind yourself in this meeting, I'm going to look at the camera as much as possible. And then every time you look away or you forget, that's okay. Come back to the camera. It's slow, gradual repetition that kind of makes it muscle memory. And I promise you over time, it will become totally natural. I'm staring at the camera right now, even though we don't have our cameras turned on. It's weird. <laughs> right.
0: I know. That's good. It's good that you've embedded it as a habit. So yep. great job. Well, Lauren, this has been such a fun discussion. I've, I've enjoyed having you on. Thanks for letting me keep you so long too. Where can people learn more about you, uh, your book, uh, unmute, anything that you want to point people to would be great.
1: Absolutely. Um, easiest way to find the book is to go to unmutebook.com. It'll take you straight to the book website, um, and, which is on my own website, but my website is laurensergy.com. And I've got lots of, of course, I've got links to the book there. I've also got lots of additional resources, videos. I regularly post communication videos on YouTube, so you can find me there too. And of course, if you ever want to reach out to me directly, it's lauren at LaurenSurgy.com.
0: Lauren, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: It's been a pleasure, Brandon. Thank you.